I invite you to turn in God's holy word to Matthew 16. And then I'd like to add a few verses from Matthew 18 to that. But Matthew 16 at verse 13 through verse 20. Looking tonight at the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the language comes from what we read here in Matthew chapter 16. Confess that the keys of the kingdom are the preaching of the gospel and church discipline. And we read in Matthew 16 at verse 13, this word of the Lord. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. If you turn to chapter 18, I'd like to read verses 15 through 20 there. Matthew 18 at verse 15. Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. God's word. I invite you to take out the Forms and Prayers book and to turn in the Heidelberg Catechism to page 235. Page 235. Last time we were looking at the Lord's Supper and the calling to guard that table. Mention was made of the need to exercise or exclude some by the keys of the kingdom. And now, Lord's Day 31, page 235, question 83 says, What are the keys of the kingdom? The answer is the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. 
Then question 84 says, how does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to, believe, to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. In question 85 says, How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated and personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. Let's bow together to ask for the Lord's help and blessing. O Lord our God, we come before a weighty matter. We come, Lord, asking for your wisdom, for your grace, for your help from above. We come wanting to understand the ways of your kingdom in this world and the place you've given to your church. We come, O Lord, rejoicing that you have a kingdom that is freely open to all sinners who will repent and come through Christ. May we do that even tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, people of God, every year people flock to Europe to gaze upon the Wonderful cathedrals there, the vaulted ceilings and flying buttresses and stained glass windows, these great architectural marvels. One writer has compared the current state of the cathedrals to the state of the church, noting that those cathedrals built in a day and an age when the church seemed to have power and, and authority and influence, days in which people trembled at what the church spoke. It was a, a weighty matter. Those days have passed. And so has the significance of the cathedrals. Now many sit empty. They're just museum pieces for tourists in many places. And so it is with the church. And many people today look upon the church as being rather insignificant and rather powerless. In America, we don't have the cathedrals. We have church buildings. And many of them are actually filled up with, with many people. But it's true even in our country, isn't it, that, that many people look upon the church as being rather powerless. In the minds of many people, the church has no more authority than any voluntary organization or any social club. What it says is of not great weight. The difference maybe between the church and some voluntary organizations is that the 
The songs we sing here, the music's about Jesus, and, and the, the speeches that we hear are about religious matters. Somebody has compared many in our culture to ecclesiastical, or has, has called them ecclesiastical hitchhikers. With their thumb in the air, they're saying, you, you buy the car, you pay for the gas, you pay for insurance, and I'll come along for the ride, and if you get in a wreck, you're on your own, or I might just sue you. And so many people treat the church that way. There's no commitment. There's no sense that, that I'm bound here in some way, but I come, I go. It doesn't matter. And you look at how the news media treat the church whenever the church or a pastor comes into the, the, the lens of the, the TV camera, right? They, they often belittle. They often, with a smirk, look at what the church says or what the pastor says. It's just some cultural oddity. And then you look sometimes within the church, and what do you hear? Preaching is not thought of as an authoritative proclamation of the gospel, but it's often the personal share time of the pastor. And so if, if there's a few warm anecdotes, a little humor, some personal vulnerability about what the pastor is struggling with, a little therapeutic medicine, and maybe some moralisms, or a little cheerleading, then everyone goes home happy. And in many places, church discipline is, is a complete thing of the past, isn't it? In some places, there's not even church membership roles. There's not even a record of who belongs to the church. And, and so we say, is it, any, is it any wonder that the church, or rather the world, thinks the church has no power if the church looks upon herself as having no authority in this world? But then you turn to God's word, as we've read tonight, and you hear Jesus Christ saying that the keys to the kingdom of heaven have been given to the church to administer upon earth. And you hear that the church has this exceedingly great distinction in the world that she and she alone administers the keys by which people come into the kingdom of eternal life or are excluded from it. And that's a weighty matter. Let's look tonight at the meaning of the keys and then consider the, the shape of the preaching key and then the shape of the discipline key. So those three points, the meaning of the keys, then the key of preaching, and then the key of, of discipline. Well, as I mentioned, the, the language keys of the kingdom comes from Matthew chapter 16, Matthew 16, where we read. And Right away, we understand that, that keys mean power. Because with a key, you can unlock a door, you can lock a door. You think maybe tonight of the keys on your keychain. Every one of those goes to a lock, and every lock is attached to something of significance. You have the power to open your front door to yourself and to lock it to everyone else. You have the power to open your car door and to start your car and drive away. And when you go to the grocery store, you have the power to lock up your car so no one else can get in there. These keys mean power, but the keys Christ speaks of are not ordinary keys because they're the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom. If you like uh, stories from the medieval times, then you have read about castles and kings who reign over a certain region, a territory. That's their kingdom. Well, the kingdom of Christ is not defined physically, but spiritually. The kingdom of Christ is wherever the rule of Christ is acknowledged. Wherever the 
rule of Christ is found in the hearts of sinners. Wherever Christ is present in all of his reigning and saving grace, there is the kingdom, the reign of the Lord Jesus. Christ has established a kingdom. Every knee will bow one day, but but the kingdom of grace is his reign. And where Christ reigns, we have the blessings of the kingdom. In this kingdom of Jesus Christ, there's forgiveness of sins, there's the renewal of the heart, there's the promise of eternal glory. The the kingdom of God is filled with the fellowship of the Lord God through Christ. Now, Christ's kingdom is so different from the kingdoms of men, but it has this in common with the kingdoms of men. It has boundaries, it has borders, it has border guards. Just because Christ's kingdom is spiritual doesn't mean that there's no walls or fences or gates. Christ's kingdom is actually the most tightly controlled kingdom in the world. You can't just walk in and out of this kingdom as you please. Remember, Jesus told Nicodemus that unless you're born again, you will not see this kingdom. Jesus actually says in Matthew 18, we didn't read it, but in Matthew 18, verse 3, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The way into the kingdom is to become humble like a child, to become helpless, to fall upon Christ. And so Jesus had told Peter when he made that, that monumental confession, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ said upon that, that confession, I will build my church. The only way into the church, into the kingdom, is by believing that, by confessing that, by confessing our sin and trusting in Jesus. Christ demands that. That's the only way into the kingdom, and Christ gives that. He transfers sinners into his kingdom. Those who are dead in sin are made alive and brought into his kingdom. But, as we're engaged in the spiritual conflict, Christ withholds his enemies, those who would come in to corrupt and destroy his church. Hypocrites and false teachers must be expelled. They can't be part of of his kingdom. Truly, it is his kingdom. That's really the most important thing we could say tonight, isn't it? That, That what we're talking about, these keys to the kingdom, are about Christ. It's his kingdom. He's the head of the church. He's the king of the kingdom. It belongs to him. He's purchased it with his own blood. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Remember these words in Revelation 3, 7, when Jesus speaks to the church in Philadelphia and says, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And so Christ owns the keys. He retains the final authority. He permits people into the kingdom. He excludes people from the kingdom. He is the Lord. But tonight we're confessing that he's entrusted the keys to the church. He gives them to the apostles in chapter 16, but when you turn to chapter 18, it's clear that it's the church. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. When somebody gives to you keys, there's a great responsibility. If you go on vacation and someone gives you the keys to their house, then you have an authority, a power, a responsibility with regard to their home and belongings. And if if you go there to water the plants one day and somebody shows up and says, you know, I need to get in the garage and and I got to take that mower and get it fixed, then, then you're stuck, aren't you? There's a dilemma here. You 
You have the responsibility. You can open or close the garage to them. But who is this? Should you let them in or not? Well, Christ has given to his church the keys to the kingdom. In Luke 12, he tells his disciples they were the stewards of the master's house. Jesus says, what you bind on earth, Matthew 16, will be bound in heaven. What you permit will be permitted. What you forbid will be forbidden. And then he, if you want an example of how serious this is, in John chapter 20, Jesus appears after his resurrection. He says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And then he says, these are astonishing words. He says, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Really ought to send a shiver down our spine, right? When people think of the church as just a voluntary organization, it has no real bearing on my life. I might be there, I might leave, it doesn't really matter. And Christ has told this church that if you forgive someone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And so it's no exaggeration to say that where the church properly exercises the keys, where she preached the gospel of the word, where she carries out discipline in accordance with the word, then it's no exaggeration to say that her work renders eternal consequences. When she does her job correctly, what she says about people's eternal destiny is what God says about their eternal destiny. The church is called the church, or Christ is called the church to be the steward of the keys. So that's the first thing. But then we look at these two keys, preaching and discipline. Preaching and discipline. First of all, preaching. Preaching. Boys and girls often like keys, right? They're fun to play with when you're young, and maybe you get an old set of keys to play with. But, but the thing about a key is that it can do two different things, right? It can unlock, but it can also lock. Well, that's what preaching does. It unlocks and it locks. The good news is declared to sinners. If you believe on Christ, your sins are forgiven. It opens the kingdom to you. But it also declares that if you reject Christ, then the wrath of God abides on you. The first role of preaching is to open the door of Christ's kingdom because the gospel is good news. It's glorious news of a Savior. Preaching points the way into the kingdom. Preaching, preaching tells what the kingdom is. It's life with God. It's fellowship with him. It's, it's a blessing of forgiveness. And preaching points the way and says the way in is through the doorway, Jesus Christ. And then as people, as people enter in upon that door, preaching declares to them, your sins are forgiven. God holds nothing against you. You are pardoned. And when the word of Christ is being preached, then it's Christ who is powerfully at work. And something glorious is happening. Remember, Peter saw that right away after Pentecost, right? The Spirit's poured out, and, and Peter preach, preaches to the Jews in Jerusalem and says, you've, you've, you've killed the Christ, you've murdered the Christ, and they're cut to the heart. They say, what shall we do? And he preaches the gospel to them. And 3,000 souls come into the kingdom that day. God's word is not simply the voice of a man, but it's the voice of Christ Jesus. 
Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We send off ambassadors on behalf of our president and our country to other lands, and they speak. They speak for our president. They speak for our country. And the apostle says that the preacher is an ambassador, that he's speaking the word of the king and of the kingdom. Jesus told his disciples when he sent out the 70 disciples, Luke chapter 10, he who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. We live in a world filled with words, right? We have too much information. We've got a whole internet full of words. We have Radio, we have podcasts, we have words everywhere, and you can take them and leave them. Accept this word. This is the word of Christ. It's a powerful word. Question 84, the catechism says, well, how does the preaching open and close the kingdom? And it says that the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring To all believers, that as often as they accept the gospel promise and true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. There's a powerful thing that's happening in the proclamation of the gospel, the authorized preaching of the word. It's every bit as much the word of Christ as if Christ himself stood before us and spoke. Sometimes ministers, I guess, wanting to be humble, kind of use the language, I I just want to share with you something that I've been thinking about. I just want to share with you what's on my heart. But, But it's probably not the best description, is it, of what's really happening. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. Proclaim it. Declare it. Not share your own thoughts, but announce the message of the king. We all have a natural tendency to, to be more interested in human trivia, don't we? And there's an attraction, isn't there, to want to hear about somebody's personal life or to hear stories about people. But I, I think it would be kind of like this. If there was a, a man sitting in a dungeon in prison and, and his life was in the hands of the king, will he execute or will he set him free? And, and the prisoner's waiting in the dungeon for the verdict from the king. And finally, here's the door open, and the messenger's coming down, and the messenger approaches. And instead of saying, what's the verdict of the king? He, he engages the messenger. You know, who are you? Are you a good friend of the king? Did you have any trouble getting in here? What, what do you think about prison conditions? Have you ever been in prison? And you say, well, that's silly. He wants to hear. What does the king say? But our natural tendency is to want to hear, what's the preacher's thought, or what did so-and-so say? We want to hear what Christ said. 
We want to hear the proclamation of forgiveness. We want to hear the announcement of the king. Because as the word, the gospel is preached, it doesn't only tell us about forgiveness, it announces forgiveness to us. You see, in the preaching of the gospel, the victory of Christ becomes our victory. The righteousness of Christ is given to us. Something happens as the word is proclaimed. The gates of the kingdom on the hinges are swinging open to all those who believe, and we are entering in. The story is told. Well, a middle-aged teacher appeared at a youth convention and explained how when he was a young man, he had given up going to church. He had gone to church for a long time, and the, the preachers were always talking about culture and civilization and all these things, but not about the gospel. So he quit going to church. And then years later, the church was going to get a new preacher. And so he decided to go to the installation service. And the, the young preacher that came said, you know, you're going to have to forgive me if, if, if my preaching seems a bit monotonous. I'm going to preach the same thing every Sunday. I'm going to preach the message of my text this morning that he who believes on the Son has life and he who does not believe will not see life. The wrath of God abides on him. The man said to himself, that's different. I'm going to come to worship from now on. And he, he stopped by the consistory room wanting to tell the preacher this. And as he came and he found out the elders were quite upset with this new preacher. And they were saying to him, if you're going to preach this old-fashioned stuff, no one's going to come to church anymore. And the man said, well, let's just wait and see. I'm new here. Let's see how it goes. Well, as he began to preach the gospel... People began to come more and more. Pretty soon they started coming an hour early to make sure they got a seat because the whole town was, was coming to hear the word. No longer the ideas of man about civilization or religious themes, but now the glad tidings of the gospel of the king. That's what we want to hear. We want to hear the announcement. But the door of this kingdom swings in both directions, doesn't it? That he who believes on the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. For those who believe, no matter how horrible their crimes, they could be a persecutor of the church like Saul, but when they believe, sins are forgiven. But for the one who refuses to believe... It doesn't matter if he's known in town as the nicest guy, he's the most polite man. You won't meet a friendlier guy if he does not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God's condemnation abides on him. And so Paul says, The fragrance of the knowledge of him is being spread, for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing too. The one we are the smell of death, and to the other the fragrance of life. The gospel is a covenant word. It brings blessing or it brings cursing. So the kingdom is being shut in the preaching to all those who will not believe. As it announces to them that as long as they refuse to repent of their sins and to put their faith in Jesus, they have no place in the kingdom. And answer 84 ends with the statement, God's judgment both in this life and in the life to come is based on this gospel testimony.
As one writer puts it, when preaching, I quote, when preaching is met with repentance and faith, then forgiveness of sins is granted. The key turns in the lock. God's huge invisible door of the kingdom opens up and believers walk in. When preaching is met with unyielding and unrepentant unbelief, the invisible door of the kingdom silently swings shut and the key turns in the lock. It's hard to believe, isn't it, sometimes that anything of any significance is really happening in a worship service. And yet Christ is calling us to believe that in the proclamation of his gospel, sinners are flooding in, receiving a place in an eternal kingdom, and unrepentant sinners are being excluded to an eternity in hell. That's what we confess tonight about gospel preaching. But then tonight about discipline, the second key, the key of discipline. We often think right away in negative terms of discipline, but discipline of itself is a, well, discipline is a very good thing, isn't it? It's, it's an act of love. Some say we can't discipline anybody. That would be unloving, and the Bible says just the opposite, right? It, it says, for instance, in, in, in Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. We're all under discipline. We're all under discipline tonight. Sitting under the word is to be disciplined because discipline is the application of God's word to our lives to conform us to that word. So we speak of personal discipline. We are to discipline ourselves. We are to apply that word to ourselves. And we speak of mutual discipline. That's that's Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go to him. It's, It's encouraging each other. It's correcting each other. But then we also speak of this official key of discipline, which is church discipline. And it's to be exercised in love. In love for the sinner so that they're not lost. In love for the church so it's not destroyed. And in love for God's honor and reputation. It is unloving to watch somebody destroy himself and to not say anything. But discipline, official discipline, is only exercised against those who refuse to repent. Remember a lady being very upset that another lady who had committed sin was was so cheerful at church. And the lady was upset, said to me, you know, if I had done what she'd done, I'd be sitting in the back pew. My Head in my hands. Well, church discipline is is not some punitive work to punish all those who've sinned, or we'd all be in the back pew, I guess. To the one who knows their sin, maybe is so ashamed of their sin, they can hardly show their face. They don't need discipline. They need to hear the gospel. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. Discipline is for the hard-hearted, for the one who laughs at his sin or denies his sin or refuses to turn from his sin. Discipline is that patient and firm process of warning and warning and warning a person and telling them to turn. And if they will not turn, then yes, that final and ultimate remedy of saying to them, you have no place in Christ's kingdom. 
You do not have a share in his forgiveness until you repent. Now, who would dare to perform such a work if, if the word was not so clear? This is the law of the Lord First Church. It doesn't matter how many have given up discipline. This is the command of Christ for his church. His office bears are to exercise discipline. And so we should be in prayer for our elders to stand firm, to carry out this difficult work. It's not pleasant. I've never met an elder who enjoys it. But Christ is clear. 1 Corinthians 5, when there was that immoral man in the congregation, the apostle writes, when you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Spoken in very stark terms, hand him over to Satan. But the goal is also spoken, so he can be saved, that he might be saved. Many times people look upon discipline as, as, as the thing that will drive a person away so they'll never be saved. And Jesus tells us in the word discipline is a tool to save people, to awaken them. The goal is to lead to repentance. Even in Matthew 18, if they don't listen to the church, treat them as a, as a heathen or a tax collector. It doesn't mean write them off and never look at them again. It means they become to you the same as an unbeliever, now an object of evangelism. When someone's excommunicated, we don't stop praying for them. We don't even stop inviting them to church. But we take the posture of the father, of the prodigal son, waiting on the porch and praying and hoping and looking for him to return. But we don't diminish the seriousness of the situation. Because it's a serious word. To have the church of Christ declare that you are outside the kingdom until you repent. And nobody can comfort themselves by saying, well, that's just the, that's just the idea of those, those elders. What they say doesn't mean anything. But Christ says, where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Answer 85 says at the end that God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. It's a weighty matter. We don't always feel the weight in a culture filled with so many denominations and churches, and many of which will take you into membership without even inquiring about the church you came from and whether you were under discipline. But it doesn't take away the weightiness of what Christ says in his word. So the key of discipline excludes people from the kingdom. But that key turns both ways too, doesn't it? Because when God, by his grace, grant repentance, it opens the door and receives them again. Answer 85, such persons when promising and demonstrating genuine reform are received again as members of Christ and of his church. Jesus says, I tell you, you will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. What a glorious kingdom. Christ sends out ambassadors to declare entrance through Jesus Christ into an everlasting kingdom of joy and forgiveness and peace. 
Christ and his great authority says to those who are hypocrites, you are outside my kingdom. But as long as it's the day of salvation, he says, return. Return in repentance and faith, and I will receive you gladly. What a glorious, glorious king we have. There is no kingdom in all of the world that is so forgiving as the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no king in all of the world that's more forgiving than our Lord Jesus Christ. The way of the church and the world is not found by downplaying all of this. Speaking no longer about declaring and proclaiming and preaching and talking now just about sharing. Taking discipline and putting on a shelf somewhere because it offends people. This is, this is not the way the church advances in the world. This is not the way souls are saved. But God will bless when his church takes seriously her task. We are the stewards of keys to an everlasting kingdom. And that is our great distinction. We ourselves must tremble before God's word. It's a weighty and glorious word. We must engage a ministry that Christ has given us upon earth. Because what's said by the church bears more weight than what's said in Washington, D.C., What's said in Washington, D.C. bears weight for a short time in a small earthly kingdom. But what is proclaimed by the church bears weight throughout all of the world for an everlasting kingdom. Tonight rejoice because we believing people, as we gather around the word each week, as we come to hear the word proclaimed, are hearing not the ideas of some man in the pulpit. We are hearing our king say to us, your sins are forgiven. You have a place in my kingdom. I will never leave you or forsake you. No matter what you've done as you fall upon me, I am all your righteousness. Come in. Be at peace. Be glad. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we... Praise you, Lord, for the keys that you've given to your kingdom and for their powerful work upon the earth. We acknowledge, O Lord, that they are weighty. We don't always know how to properly use them. And we confess, O Lord, that ours is a culture very confused as a church about how to use these keys. We pray, Lord, for your church in America, that you would strengthen us to to know the power and authority you've given to your church and to wield it in a way of, yes, humility, but faithfulness, truth, and the power of your spirit. Oh, God, do a great work, we pray. We thank you that by your word you are saving us. We thank you for your warnings. We thank you for the glorious glad tidings. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will bless your preachers with faithfulness in the pulpit, that you bless your elders with faithfulness in applying that word to the lives of your people. We pray you'd bless us with unity as a congregation to engage this stewardship. And we pray, Lord, that through it, you will save many souls to the glory of your name. For Jesus' sake, amen.